Does your current premium finance company lock you into long-term agreements? That's because they don't want you talking to us. At IFS, we win your business the good old-fashioned way, with customer service. I know you don't always have to use a premium finance company, but when you do, you should use IFS. Cheers. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Digital Insurance Point Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Reed, and as always, I am joined by my colleagues, Steve Earle, Angry Steve, CEO of Cheap Insurance. Hello. Adam Mitchell, CEO of Mitchell & Whale. Hello. And Jeff Roy, CEO of Excalibur Insurance. Welcome. And today, we are pleased to be joined by Bruce Rabick. Bruce, how you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Awesome. So, Bruce, in lieu of me introducing you, I'm going to pass the uh, the audio stick over to you and let you give us and our loyal cadre of viewers uh, a little background on yourself. Uh, over to you, Bruce. Uh, sure. Well, somehow I found myself to be kind of an old guy in the industry. Uh, started as an underwriter, uh, spent a few years as that, then went over to what really was the very first consolidator in the Canadian insurance industry, a company called Trivest, and we invested in brokers across Canada. Ended up in one of our investments in Calgary, did a big merger, uh, had some issues there, did a bunch of years of consulting to brokers from literally Newfoundland to Vancouver Island. And then for the last 20 years, I've been the chief operating officer of Rogers Insurance, uh, based uh, right now in Calgary. So, I wouldn't mind getting a little background too about the CBN, the Canadian Broker Network, about uh, you know, yeah, founding that, how it started, uh, your history of, and, and, and why you started it too. Sure. Well, through my career, I'd been involved in a number of broker groups, uh, including, uh, the, and these are names from the past, but 7 Plus 1 Group, uh, INS, which was really the uh, furthering evolution of the Trivest Broker Network. And what I looked at is we wanted to create the best broker group, uh, broker network in Canada. And so we started with a few learnings from those other groups, including uh, an insistence right from the start that we share financial statements. Um, and that just cuts out a lot of the bullshit, right? Um, so it allowed for some real cross-learnings because we could compare. And it started as a, as a really good just sharing network, best practices network, and, you know, it evolved into something far, far more than that uh, as of late, including, you know, we work on acquisitions or investments together and, uh, and uh, planning with carriers. So. so, Bruce, can you give us some quick background on your firm? Like, where did Rogers come from? Where is it going and where are you trying to take it? Rogers Insurance started it literally as a one-man firm by Peter Rogers in 1977 through the last 20 years with organic growth and a whole bunch of acquisitions. We're now 500 staff, uh, you know, 500 million in premium, and we're in British Columbia, Alberta, and Ontario. Um, we have a you know, pretty good track record of a fair number of acquisitions. We're very active in the acquisition side of things. 
you know, within our CBN group, our network, uh, there are some other CBN members that are active as well on acquisition. Synex Group, our partner out of Quebec, is quite active. They just did a private equity deal, which we followed very closely. Capri in British Columbia has been uh, a little less active, but nonetheless has done some important acquisitions. So, so we're in an interesting place in that Rogers Insurance is very active about acquisitions, but we also have our CBN network partners where we share some information and on occasion we we've done joint acquisitions together so so that kind of gives us extra tools in the toolbox on the M&A side that's uh, very unique so i guess we'll start off with why should a broker sell to Rogers you know what's your elevator pitch aside from money what value to bring and uh, maybe you can talk about after that you know what would a what would a joint venture look like if you if you Rogers didn't do it and used one of your other partners like Synex? Well, I always like to start off the answer to that question in that uh, let's be clear: most of the acquisitions being done out there right now are either being done by American brokers or brokers owned by insurance companies. There is very very few true Canadian brokers left uh, and even fewer doing acquisitions. So uh, Rogers Insurance is 100% Canadian and I don't think people realize that those names that you know that are actively doing acquisitions, I mean there's WFG and BrokerLink which of course are owned by insurance companies but almost all the other ones doing acquisitions are really effectively controlled by American private equity. So number one reason why you should do a deal with us is because we're Canadian. And somebody's going to say, do I care? They're going to give me a bunch of money. Well, if you care about your clients and you care about your staff, are you really going to leave them in the hands of a bunch of investors in Chicago? And I mentioned Chicago because that's where a lot of the private equity starts. Um, they may say they're Canadian, they may say they're building the great Canadian broker. Make no mistake, they're absolutely controlled by American private equity, period. And, you know, and if you know the nature of American private equity, you know their horizon is three to four years. Do you really want to sell your life's work, your clients, your staff to somebody who's has a timeline of three to four years. In other words, the private equity firm is only in that long and then they need to flip it to give their investors back the money. Uh, and then, so that firm will be traded to a different private equity firm or a pension fund or whoever. It might be somebody with a very different agenda. So I like to start off there, but uh, I've got lots of other answers. Rogers Insurance is the most uh, award-winning top employer in the Canadian insurance industry, bar none, uh, on the carrier side or the broker side. We've won something like 19 top employer awards, uh, top SME employer, top, sorry, 50 SME employer in all of Canada and in all industries, something like four or five times. Uh, every year, top 75 employer in Alberta, once in a while, top 100 employer in Canada. 
Um, so why? Because our culture and the way we treat staff is, is you know, we work really hard at doing a first-rate job of that. Um, the other reasons are, you know, if you just want money, we've got money just like anybody else does. Uh, uh, another reason to do a deal with us, we don't come in with boilerplate structures. Uh, for example, we are, have been known to do minority interest deals, which virtually, again, none of our competitors will do, because that's one of the rules that private equity sets forth. They need to control your firm, because then they won't need to extract the highest profit or EBITDA out of it. Uh, and part of that, again, is because they have a three to four year horizon where, because we have a lot longer horizon, because we don't uh, look at it that way, perhaps we have a little less pressure to extract the highest level of profits. And our focus is more on organic growth. So I can go on and on, but if you're thinking of selling to anybody, you should at least talk to Rogers first. That's a, a really clear pitch and, and kudos for that sort of clarity for the listeners. Um, given the either company-owned brokerages or, or acquirers and or the private equity-owned or inspired, funded acquirers, many of them seem to uh, buy anybody who puts their hand up on any size. And some of them have started to delineate a, a very commercial specialty or, or focus. What's the Rogers um, acquisition target broker? What does the, the target broker look like for size or geography or, or other makeup? Again, we're a little bit flexible. So there's really a couple different kinds of acquisitions. There's the tuck-ins. So where we have an existing footprint, very happy to look at you know smaller or even bigger brokers that we can consolidate into there. Uh, which, or if it's a if it's a minority interest, you know, it can stand alone, but use the services that we have in that geographic footprint, uh, you know, backroom or brokering. Uh, we also love to do the big bigger standalone office. Uh, so, for example, we acquired uh, Megs and Fitzpatrick on in Victoria. That at the time they had about a hundred staff. So. Uh, and, you know, we're still fairly big in personal lines. Uh, we recognize personal lines. There's lots of opportunity left. There's lots of opportunity in small commercial. So we're not just trying to build, you know, another Aon Marsh Willis, which some of our competitors seem to aspire to. Like we're still building the you know, the great Canadian brokerage that's actually reflects the whole economy, personal, small commercial, and big commercial. So, Bruce, let's talk about uh, brokers who've invested in some sort of digital strategy, whether that's an internal, you know, best practices kind of strategy or, or something external, you know, lead gen, uh, lead management, you know, all that, all that kind of good stuff. Do you find that those brokers are more attractive to you? And, and does that does that turn, does that kind of implemented digital strategy, does that actually turn into a valuation boost for that particular uh, prospect? So I'm going to be real nervous answering that question because there's a, some really smart people on this panel. Um, and they're going to feel free to correct me. So 
Absolutely, in theory, somebody that's doing well in digital absolutely has enhanced their value. I guess the question is, there's a lot of noise out there, and and I'm not speaking about anybody on this panel, of course, but we all know there's a couple of players out there who claim to be digital, who are just bleeding red ink, and who are in trouble. And, you know, our mutual friend, if Sharif was here, he loves to list the litany of digital firms on both sides of the border that have just seen their valuations absolutely crash. Um, so we have to distinguish, are you digital or are you successfully digital? And that's an important distinction. If you're successfully digital, this doesn't necessarily mean you're making piles of money. It means that you have a future pathway to profitability that, you know, you've got some of the basics, right? Absolutely. That's worth something. But if you're just mucking around in digital, um, as a game, I think we can all think of a couple players out there right now. If they're mucking around and just bleeding the red ink with no prospect of future, I think those assets are almost becoming toxic right now because you're, it's way better to start from scratch than take over a legacy, uh, you know, so-called digital play that's, that's kind of in a mess. So when you make an acquisition, what do you do with the former owners? Do you want them to go away? Do you bring them in and uh, work them to the bone until they die? Do they get to hand the keys over to you? Do you do joint ventures? Uh, like, Talk about existing ownership and how that looks on an acquisition. That's a great question. Um, and I'm going to give you a muddled answer by saying it depends because our learnings are, it can go either way. We've done some acquisitions where, you know, the existing principal or principals have stayed in and it's gone really, really well. Uh, and we've done some deals where, you know, we just loathe the day when we offered the existing principal uh, an employment contract. I think the difference is why are they selling and what's their view of their role in the future? If they buy into what you're trying to accomplish, into the vision, if they don't have the oversized ego where they, they just need to still be the boss, um, you know, those are the kind of considerations that you really need to look at. If they're good guys or gals that want to continue and they see the advantages of being part of a more collaborative group or a bigger group, it can work beautifully, but sometimes it's just a disaster. And I'm not going to mention names, but you know, there's a consolidator in Ontario right now, three presidents in three years overturned their uh, executive leadership group two or three times in three years. I mean, it's just a revolving door. And, you know, because they never had those conversations with the firms that they acquired and they probably set unreasonable expectations. So, so it's, you got to be careful. That's all. 
I know some of your firms you've purchased. Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm really curious. Do you, do you keep the name or it depends if it's a tuck-in, you don't. It depends on the situation. I'm assuming it depends. Uh, what, what do you like? Again, some of the firms have built their names, but it all depends on the, the buyer, what they want done, right? So how do you figure out, do you keep the name or not? What do you, uh, how do you figure that out? Yeah, a good question and one where my answer will have changed over the years. Uh, we were able to get some learning from, let's call it one of the big consolidators because we uh, hired one of their, you know, sort of key staff away. Um, their learnings was, after a bunch of years of doing this, that the name of a brokerage was far more important to the former owner of the brokerage than it was to their clients. And the only thing that matters to clients is Joe used to deal with me. Am I still dealing with Joe? Cause I like Joe and I had some trust with Joe. I don't really care what's the name on Joe's uh, business card. And I, you know, I don't really want to go to the trouble of changing firms and signing a bunch of papers. I just know Joe was good. And if Joe or Jill is still handling my policies, the customer doesn't care very much about the branding. Now, that's been a real learning experience for us because we've had, we bought some offices that we thought had really deep goodwill in the local communities. And we stuck with the names. And that's not a mistake. Um, it's gone fine. What we just learned over time is the customer really didn't care that much. Again, it's because we kept all the staff and we kept the staff happy. Uh, Mooney Insurance in Red Deer was a great example. Like, you know, fantastic footprint in a city of about 90,000 people, a high profile. We kept the name. We thought it was so terribly important. And then one day all the staff at Mooney Insurance came and said, uh, could we just change the names to Rogers Insurance? Because all of our customers kind of know we're part of the Rogers Insurance Group and they don't really care. So it was actually the staff there who came to us and said, you know, can we just get over this? And Because we all think of ourselves as Rogers Insurance. So we said, okay, sure. And then, you know, we just didn't lose any clients or anything. So... That's a really good segue into the, the next question of what's in it for the acquired teammates or employees? I guess it depends on who's buying you. Um, our value proposition would be, you know, uh, by joining a larger group, you get some stability, you get better career options, you're going to end up with better training. Uh, we can provide better backup, you know, so for example, we parachuted people from Calgary into smaller centers if suddenly they were short staffed. Uh, a great example, our learning experience, and I think you guys know this story. I think we set the record in Canada for the most claims reported by any broker from one catastrophe, and that was the Fort McMurray fire. So we reported over 5,000 claims in a short period of time when our entire office in Fort McMurray was shut down and those staff went home to Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, Saskatchewan, whatever, because they were homeless themselves. And so all that claims had to go to the other offices. 
So we were able to get through that, keep those customers happy, so that when the staff in Fort McMurray were finally able to come back home, you know, they weren't dealing with a mess. So there's a lot of advantages of being part of a bigger broker for that individual frontline person. But just being bigger isn't better. Uh, it's what you actually bring. And again, you know, we're very proud of our culture. And, uh, you know, one thing that we offer, which is totally unique in Canada, we have 158 employee shareholders. Every single employee in any operation that we have ownership in has the opportunity to buy shares in Rogers Insurance. And very importantly, the same class of shares as Bruce and Lee Rogers own, you know, no BS about different classes of shares or, you know, different rights or anything like that. We're all equal as far as that goes. And every single employee has that opportunity. So they become owners. Hey, loyal listeners, when you hear me say CAS certified, that means that we use them in our agency. Are you a local insurance agent looking to take your business to the next level? Write more business and see your agency succeed with NBS, aka Nationwide Brokerage Solutions. But like in today's world, we use these initials like it's cool because it is. And it's hip. At Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, they offer the challenges local agents face in the constantly changing market. That's why they offer a wide array of personal and commercial markets and policy options to help you meet the needs of your customers, no matter how unique they may be. With a team of experienced and dedicated professionals that provide you with the support and the guidance you need to see your agency succeed. Nationwide Brokerage Solutions is here to support you every step of the way. Don't you survive in the competitive insurance industry? Thrive with Nationwide Brokerage Solutions today. Get started today and learn more at mbsbrokerage.com. That's where you learn more, mbsbrokerage.com. Cash certified. I'm going to bring another party to the table here in terms of the carriers. So we all hear stories about what happens to certain carriers, some winners, some losers during acquisitions. What happens in your case? Are there are there winners and losers when it comes to the carrier side uh, when you guys do an acquisition? Yeah, I think that story is changing. Um, I think 10 years ago, in a, the carriers were the major source of financing for brokers buying brokers. And so there was absolutely winners and losers on that. Depending which carrier financed it, they were the winner because they would exert some sort of volume commitment or, you know, cancel this portfolio. But as we've evolved where private equity uh, and, you know, certain of the retail banks have become a little more cognizant that, you know, lending money to brokers might be a, a good thing. You know, previously it's really been the exclusive territory of BMO, and now they're starting to get competitors there. So I think the nature is changing, and, you know, during COVID, all the carriers basically, except for Intact, basically exited the broker financing business. Uh, they're all coming back, but I think they just can't do the kind of lending that a retail bank or a private equity or so on and so forth can do. So uh, 
So it's more complicated. I think carriers want to be very close to this. I think they want to be in the lending business. Certain carriers partner very, very well with certain banks. You know, Economical and BMO, for example, have a long track record. Uh, BMO works with a number of the carriers. So they can leverage off each other and you can bring the advantage of both. And that way you don't have perhaps as many uh, conditions on the financing, so on and so forth. So, so it's, it's a tougher question to answer now than 10 years ago. I think it, there's still winners and losers, but it's, it's a lot more complicated of a finance scene now. So where do you see valuations going? Like how, how do you look at a brokerage and go, that's what that's worth. This is what that's worth. Like, are there things other than just a multiple of EBITDA or a multiple of commissions? What is it you're looking for? And where where are multiples going? So the big debate, are multiples too high? Uh, do they have to go down? Could they even go higher? Uh, so we've tried to do a fair bit of research. We've had a lot of conversation with some of the big American uh, consulting firms, uh, We've flown the president of one of those big firms up to Canada about three times for some deep learning sessions. Uh, we've had discussions with, uh, you know, quite a few different people in the business of financing brokers. The point is the multiples are not going down. Um, interest rates would have to go up a lot to start putting a damper on the frenzy that's happening right now. Um, so I don't, I don't foresee that multiples will go down. Can they go higher? Uh, you guys have probably all read the, uh, the headlines lately, Acrisure, uh, you know, valued currently at $23 billion. Uh, this is a firm that I forget how long they've been in. You guys might remember, but, uh, meeting Greg Williams, he didn't know a thing about insurance brokers. His neighbor across the fence told him about insurance brokering. He checked into it. And so, you know, X number of years, he's built a firm that's been valued at 23 billion and apparently at an outrageous multiple, uh, you know, uh, of EBITDA. So, so that's, I think where they're going, what do you look for in terms of that valuation? Well, everything's valued in theoretical on future earnings, right? So it depends on, you know, what you project that that asset is going to earn in the future. Is it sustainable? Do you have to risk adjust it? Um, you know, I think, and it goes in cycles about perception. So commercial lines was more valuable for a while, but then people started to realize, you know, personal lines isn't going away and it's actually pretty stable. There's some, some good uh, asset value there. So between commercial and personal and then small commercial perceptions change uh, and perceptions will vary between the acquisitors, but you know, when it really comes down to what's the future earnings and does it have good people? 
because and that's something we can't overlook is we all know talent is in shortage and you know us for one we're willing to pay a premium for good people period so besides good people what else can brokers do to make their business worth more uh is it a is it a factor of growth bruce do you look at you know some people talk about the factor of 40 if your growth and your ebitda is 40 or over in some other industries that's attractive is it strictly just improving your ebitda is it improving your cpc uh you know what what can brokers do to make you more attractive to to a buyer like yourself well i think a few basic things uh Growth is more valuable than EBITDA at the margin, right? Like, I mean, you have to have a certain EBITDA or at least the potential to have a certain EBITDA uh, for the future. But once you get past that, if you can grow, you're more valuable or you have a track record of growing, you're more valuable than somebody who's just not growing and maybe has a decent EBITDA. Um, talent. And I know, Jeff, you said besides talent, but it's so terribly important. Uh, Again, if you have talented people uh, in your firm, you're more valuable. If you have a bunch of people, if you've waited too long and all your key staff are now, you know, um, I was going to try and pick on somebody, but I'm probably the oldest guy here. If you got a whole bunch of people my age, uh, even though I'm not going to retire for a long time, you're not as valuable because that's just a headache to try and go find all those good people. So if you have a bunch of mid-career, talented people, you have a very, very valuable firm no matter where you are. Other than that, you know, it's, are your profits sustainable? Are you, is everything in good shape? Like what, although... Uh, you know, we're all interested in the work that Steve's doing on comparing productivity between between different broker management systems and things and can't wait for his conclusion someday. Um, you know, like, are your processes in place? Do you have, you're not using some wingnut broker management system that's going to be hard to convert. Uh, you know, your processes are solid, stable. Your E&O processes, like nobody wants to buy an asset that's going to have three E&O claims the next two years. So, I mean, I can go on and on, but I think most brokers know what makes them valuable. Where do you think the valuations compare in current days between the, the commercial lines and personal lines? You, you touched on it a bit of it used to be all the rage on commercial and then the marketplace changing its eyes to the stability of personal and how would you describe if there is a difference? Well, I think something's worth what somebody's willing to pay. So different acquirers place a different value in different things. If you're a commercial mostly firm and you only want to buy more commercial, you know, you're likely to pay a premium for commercial. Uh, if you're like us, a little more diversified, um, you know, we would treat them relatively equal with some important caveats. Uh, Specialized commercial lines that are sustainable is at a premium, absolutely. Considered a premium asset. If you have a niche program or a specialty that's sustainable, you're going to see that people are going to be willing to pay a premium for that. 
On the other hand, if you had a very solid group personal lines program that ticks over and does uh, you know, a healthy profit, you're probably going to be able to garner a premium on that as well. So, you know, most people are still going to say commercial is more valuable. I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I think it's really, you got to look at the specific asset and personal lines can be very valuable too. So talking about the things that make brokers more valuable, I want to spin that around a little bit and talk about things that might get in the way. And you talked about in bygone years, there was a lot of um, financing done by carriers. And in a lot of those cases, that came with a right of first refusal. Like that was how the carrier protected its investment. A lot of those rofers are still out there today. So let, let's assume that you're looking at a prospect and they have they have a rofer. Does that does that make you like back off? Does that diminish the value of the brokerage? How how do you what's your what's your behavior when you see that your prospect has a right of first refusal in in force? I think in the last 10, 20, whatever years, it's been really interesting that our entire industry's missed, just totally missed, and hasn't talked about a couple things. One is the current Americanization of the entire brokering industry. And nobody's even asking the question, is that important? Should we be worried? Should we talk about it? And the other one that's been around a lot longer is, Tom, exactly what you just said, is rofers. Talk to so many brokers who did a carrier financing deal and then went to do something. They said, you know, I didn't understand this rofer. I didn't realize what it really meant. Uh, if I could plead with brokers out there on one specific thing, I would say, don't sign a rofer. Like, you don't need to sign a rofer. It's just consider it absolutely it diminishes the value of your broker. Uh, it restricts your future options. Uh, no matter what anybody says, it's the kiss of death. I've literally had uh, a broker owner sob to me because they said, I have no choice. I wanted to sell to so-and-so. In that particular case, it was Rogers Insurance. And they said, I can't. And now my firm that I spent my entire life building is going to be folded into so-and-so and literally sobbed because said, I just don't want that and had no choice. But they didn't understand what they sold. Why aren't we doing great big billboards out there that say, do not sign a rofer for your own good and protection? And by the way, you don't need to because there's lots of other sources of financing. So you you guys should be on a mission. Convince every broker in Canada, don't ever sign a rofer. We'll have to uh, change our t-shirts to say no to portals and rofers. <laughs> okay, so what's the end game for Rogers? You know, you, you had mentioned, well, I'm not retiring anytime soon, but maybe you are at some point, but where, where's Rogers going in, in the future? You know, that's a hard question. Um, and you know, a lot of ways, the hardest question. So we talk a lot about scale and what does scale mean? It does not just mean size or, you know, big for the sake of being big. We define it as meaning it gives us more and more capabilities to be able to service our client and to give our staff the kind of career that we think would be top notch. 
So I don't know how big that is, but what I do know is it changes every day as our competitors get bigger, as customers get more sophisticated, as the industry gets more complex. We need to keep building capabilities. So what's the end game, Steve? I don't know for sure, but what I do know is we, we're not setting up our firm to just sell out. Um, we need to be opportunistic. We need to be entrepreneurial. We need to keep just on our toes and just keep looking out for what's over the horizon. And so far, that's worked pretty well. We think it'll continue to always work well because in the end, if we can make our customers happy, we should be able to win no matter what size, no matter, you know, how evil our competitors are. Um, you know, we can, we can win if we keep our customers happy. And so, and that's a pretty good feeling to create what we're calling a forever firm. You know, in other words, our firm in some shape or form, we're hoping will exist forever, that it will always be controlled by employees. And it just has to keep changing and being opportunistic. So, Steve, keep asking that question. Like six months from now, a year from now, I don't know if I'll have different answers, but that's my answer for right now. The great Canadian award-winning forever firm with 150 owners that's done some deep learning learning, and not smoking any rofers. I think that uh, can summarize you up in one sentence, which, again, you're doing a lot of remarkable things. And one thing I'd just like to ask just at the tail end here is you maybe talk to the, our listeners about you've made a lot of great purchases and done some great things through the Rogers vehicle, but you're one of the founders of CBN, Canadian, Canadian Broker Network. And you've partnered with some of the other people and purchased some places together. Why did you find it more better to do a deal with one of the partners in CBN versus doing it through Rogers? What was your learning from that? And maybe share that with the listeners. Sure. Um, so CBN Group, we perpetuated one of our own members, uh, Smith Petrie in Ottawa. Uh, the guys there were ready to retire. They wanted to sell out. They wouldn't sell to anybody but their CBN partners. Uh, good opportunity, great firm, great city. Uh, really, it just came down to, in that case, we all wanted uh, to be partners there. So currently, that's three CBN partners in there. Uh, our good friend Sharif wanted to focus on Trufla. And so it was time for him to, uh, you know, let Sharp... Uh, go on to, a, you know, a different kind of ownership. So we kept our uh, minority interest in there. And one of our CBN partners, Synex out of Quebec, came and, you know, bought out Sharif. And again, it, it works really well. It means our partners in CBN, we're collaborating on different ways. Uh, we share intelligence. Now we're sharing equity in certain investments. Uh, you know, we also collectively bought Southwestern Group a bunch of years ago. We owned it for three years and then we sold it because we didn't see any particular advantage of owning that particular MGA at that particular time. Um, and, you know, 
that's a great story because none of us could have bought Southwestern Group on our own. It was kind of a big ticket, but together we could as CBN Group. We sold it three years later, and I'm just going to say we all made a very large profit out of that after fixing it up. And that shows you the benefit of collaboration. And so I often say to other brokers, other independent brokers, other Canadian brokers, you're not my enemy. My enemy is all those guys uh, bringing their money across the border from the United States or the brokerages owned by our carriers. You're not my enemy and we should be collaborating uh, and working to make each of us stronger. CBN is a great vehicle for that. I really encourage people to check out CBN because uh, we are now looking for new members or at least exploring that. But there's other networks, there's other ways. Uh, collaboration between independent brokers, I think, is, is really a, a good ticket to success. Bruce, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. On behalf of the crew here, give a shout out to our sponsors, IFS Premium Finance, our premier sponsor, as, long as, as well as the crew group and our charity partner, WIC. So thanks to those folks who help us bring this to a variety of uh, channels, including YouTube and Spotify, and check us out there. Is retention important to your brokerage? Of course it is. That's why at IFS, we have a cancellation prevention process. Want more details? Give us a call. I know you don't always use a premium finance company, but when you do, you should use IFS. Cheers. Hello, loyal listeners. Hey, are you a local agent struggling to find markets for your client? Maybe you, maybe not. Look no further than Nation Brokerage Solutions. With over 200 carriers, their comprehensive options give you what you need for your customers' ever-changing needs. With NBS, as they say it in the cool world, you can confidently offer a wide range of options to better support your customers and grow your business, A.K. agency. Don't settle for less. Do more with NBS. For more information about Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, visit nbsbrokerage.com. Cast Certified.